the more time that I spend getting to know our young adult family, uh, the deeper and deeper issues that we begin to uncover. And let me just name a few. Depression. Maybe you're feeling down. Maybe you've been feeling down for a long time. It's kind of a season of sadness or anxiety. That persistent worry that seems to be out of control and and you're not in control of your circumstances, you're not in control of, of life, and you're feeling anxious, you're feeling worried. Or motivation, or a lack thereof. It's hard to get out of bed. It's hard to go to work. Maybe satisfaction or dissatisfaction. Maybe you're having a hard time, you know, just finding joy in life. And maybe it's work, or maybe it's hobbies, or maybe it's relationships. You're just feeling empty, and nothing seems to solve the problem. Maybe you're having struggles with sleep, insomnia, or hypersomnia. Not sleeping enough or sleeping too much. Maybe there's some relationship problems in your life. You're single and you don't want to be. Or you're in a toxic relationship or you're in broken dating relationship after broken dating relationship after broken dating relationship, or maybe marriage just isn't going too hot. Or maybe it's delayed adulthood. Maybe you've heard the phrase before, it's the Peter Pan problem, where some young adults just don't want to grow up and perpetually want to live a childlike life. Some deep things, and maybe some of them are your reality tonight. Now, I'm convinced that those symptoms can all be traced to one common source, pornography and sexual sin. Not always, but often. Just because someone is struggling with one of those things, maybe they're feeling down, they're feeling anxious, does not necessarily mean that the root has to be pornography or sexual sin, but it certainly could be. I think you'd be surprised at how many conversations I have in my office about some of these things. The counseling load that happens in my office just talking about some of these, these struggles. I think you'd be surprised. And for every individual who does open up about struggling with sexual sin, there's probably three or five more who are holding that sin in. Now, there's at least two individuals or two types of people that I want to address tonight before we dive in. First, if tonight is your first time here, this is an abnormally heavy topic, but I know you're here for a reason. And I'm thankful that you're here and that the Lord brought you here tonight. Second, there's a group of you that have trusted me in one-on-one conversations talking about some of these deeper things in your life, talking about struggles that you've had with pornography, struggles that you've had with sexual sin. And the fact that you would trust me with that deep of a struggle is an honor to me. And I want to continue to walk with you through those struggles. But I want to get one thing straight tonight. I hate pornography. It is satanic. It is of the devil. And it is 
in my opinion, the single biggest obstacle that is preventing young adults, young Christian adults in America from being the people that God wants you to be. I am this close to starting my own commune where there's no Netflix and there's no social media, there's no unbridled internet access. I'm only half kidding, seriously. Our talk tonight has been brewing in my heart for a long time. It's coming from countless conversations that I've had with many of you and many others in my office or at a coffee shop at our house. I see so much gospel potential in this room tonight. The sky is the limit for what God can do through this group of young adults, through our young adult family. But I know that many of you are being held back by a heavy backpack, a heavy backpack of sexual sin and pornography. It's holding you back from being who God wants you to be. Now, I don't think I need to convince you that pornography is wrong. It's a sin. It breaks God's heart. And you swing the pendulum the other direction. Some of you are dealing with this guilt and this shame that you just don't know what to deal with. And you feel unlovable. You feel unforgivable. You feel unwanted. Those are lies from the enemy. But I don't need to convince you that pornography is sinful. I also don't need to convince you that we live in a hyper-sexualized culture. I was listening to the radio the other day, and there was one of those radio preachers, and uh, he said something that I thought was true. He said, quote, you could experience more sensuality in an evening than your grandparents did in their entire lifetime. I think he's right. We have unparalleled access to explicit material that a generation before us was unfathomable. I don't need to convince you that we live in a hypersexualized culture. We have access to the internet in a matter of seconds, and you could be innocently watching TV or innocently watching that Netflix series, and something triggers you down a spiral that you really didn't think you would have been on on Friday night. But I might need to convince you that pornography is killing you. It is not neutral. It is not a little white lie. It is not something that you've just got to grow out of or something that everybody struggles with at some point. Either sin is killing us or we're killing sin. I think it's easy for each of us to minimize our own sin. I also might need to convince you that sexual sin is never personal and private, even the most private or private feeling of sins have public consequences. So before we dive in, uh, there's a couple things that I want to make sure that we all understand. And first of all, every single one of us is sexually broken. There is not one person that walked in the room, this room tonight that has not struggled and given in to sexual sin in some capacity. Not one. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, yeah, I mean, look how Jesus defines sexual sin. Like, if you give in to the sin of lust, then, like, that's adultery. Like, certainly all of us have done that. Yes, certainly all of us have given in to the sin of lust. But let me take it a step farther. I'm convinced that if not 100%, 99% of us who walked in this room tonight have given in to some sort of sexual sin that's beyond the point of mental lust beyond thinking something, saying something, doing something, looking at something. 
All of us are sexually broken. All of us need Jesus transforming and forgiving grace in this area of our life. It might be easy for us to pretend that we're perfect, pretend like this has never been a struggle for us, but all of us carry some degree of sexual baggage and brokenness. And I'm also not sure of your background or relationship with pornography. It could look like a couple different things. Maybe you're not fighting pornography and you'd say, man, this is fun. I'm enjoying this. This is filling a void in my life. You just give in to that desire. Or maybe you're fighting, but you're losing. You'd say, yeah, I know this is wrong. I know that Jesus doesn't want me to do this. I'm really trying hard, but you're just not experiencing victory. Or maybe you're here tonight and you're experiencing some victory over the sin. You're winning more battles than you're losing, but there's still some room for growth. Or maybe you're here tonight and the temptation is there, but you're experiencing great victory for months, for years. This is a, a thing of the past. Not that the desire, not that the temptation is gone, but that struggle giving into that sin is in the past. Praise the Lord. Or there might be others here tonight that simply have never pursued pornography. And in one sense, I would say, yeah, absolutely, praise the Lord. What a gift. <laughs> but just because someone has never looked at it doesn't mean that it won't be a struggle in the future. It reminds me of an account, a story. I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine. We'll call him Peter. And someone had just asserted <laughs> overcommonly to Peter. and said, you know... I made it through college without ever looking at pornography. So I think I'm going to be okay. This isn't going to be a struggle in my life. And Peter laughed and recounted his own story as he made it through all of college, not struggling with this at all. And it wasn't until he was 23 or 24, 25, that this became a temptation and became a real struggle in his life that he had to fight through for years. Just because someone's not struggling today does not mean that they're going to be immune for the rest of their life. It's prudent for all of us to protect ourselves regardless of our past history. So regardless of your relationship with pornography tonight, it's essential, it's essential that each one of us understand God's perspective as we walk in the midst of a society that is going to continue to inundate us with sexualized content. And tonight I'm going to talk predominantly about pornography because I think that's one of the biggest issues when we think of sexual sin, though I think our discussion could apply to, and our application could apply to just about any form of sexual sin, but I'll use the word pornography predominantly tonight. <laughs> now, when you hear a sex talk at church, it probably comes with a little bit of baggage. I mean, maybe you remember your awkward youth pastor uh, gluing two pieces of paper together and ripping them apart or giving all these strange illustrations about fires and fire pits and giving way too much information about his own marriage, right? Maybe that's what rings a bell. Or you think of a sex talk at church and you think it's filled with all the things you can't do. That's all Christians talk about. All the stuff that you can't do, you can't have fun, you can't pursue what you want to pursue. It's all a big list of no's. That's not where we're going to start tonight because that's not where the Bible starts when it talks about sex. So I'm going to start in Genesis 2.24. You can turn there with me. 
It shouldn't be very hard to find because it's literally on like page two of your Bible. At least mine's on page two. We're going to start there tonight to look at God's design for sex, God's design for intimacy, and let's affirm what's good before we talk about things that we can't do. So Genesis 2, verse 24 and 25, says this. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they, the two, shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked, and they were not ashamed. Man, I love the Bible because this is like the most G-rated way to talk about what we know is going on. God created sex in the beginning as a good thing to be enjoyed in the right context. God is the first being to ever have a sexual thought. God created sex. This is something that existed before the fall. Certainly sin has tainted it. But we have to understand that God designed sex to be enjoyed in the right context And we see that as we look at Scripture. Think of the book of Song of Solomon. If you haven't read it, you should wait to read it until you're married. Because it's a picture of the love between a man and his wife, a man and woman, in a covenant marriage relationship. As King Solomon, who had hundreds of wives and hundreds of concubines, writes the Song of Solomon, I believe, at the end of his life as a, a way of wisdom for a young man say, this is the way marriage and intimacy are supposed to look. Don't make the mistakes that I made. That's what we see in the Song of Solomon. It's a picture of love in marriage between a husband and wife. But like most forms of sin, Satan has taken something that's good, something that's to be enjoyed without, in the right context, and he's warped it and twisted it. But from the beginning, sex was created as good. But we see in Scripture that sex is a gift, It's not a right. And the difference is subtle, but it's key, is we live in a world that claims that sex is a human right, that each person deserves to find sexual fulfillment in whatever way that they want, as long as the sex is consensual. Our culture connects someone's sexuality to their identity. This is just who I am. But when that's how we define sex and that's how we define morality, then who becomes the source of truth? Well, each individual person. But when we allow God to define truth, to define sex, we see that sex is is not a human right, it's a gift. We see that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when God upholds singleness as something good, something beautiful, something to be enjoyed, something that serves the church, not as a second-rate thing, but as an equal thing with marriage. A life without sexual fulfillment is not a life without meaning or pleasure. God upholds celibacy and abstinence as good, godly, and satisfying things. What pornography takes, what God's created as a good gift to be enjoyed in the right context, and then exploits it and warps it, it's a perversion of God's design. And it affects many different aspects of a person. Let's first look at the brain and what pornography does to someone's mind. Pornography mimics various substances. Each time someone views pornography, they get a dopamine hit, which is our pleasure hormone. It looks like a substance, an illegal substance or a drug, right? That when someone partakes of that 
drug, they get a dopamine hit. But it works in the same way that in order for someone to get the same level of dopamine, they actually have to increase their usage of that drug over time. And it's the same with pornography, which is why if, if you've struggled in this area, chances are when your struggle began, it started with probably something that was pretty innocent, probably just still pictures, probably stuff you wouldn't even call pornography today. And through the course of your struggle, it's probably increased to some deeper and deeper things, maybe even some types of pornography that you wouldn't want anybody else to know about. That's because to get that same level of dopamine release, you have to increase uh, the, the type of things that you might be viewing. That's how sin works. It works as a spiral. And the more that someone views pornography, just like the more that they would uh, use drugs, new pathways in someone's brain uh, would be created. And those pathways overpower someone's risk management, the prefrontal, prefrontal cortex of someone's brain, which takes away some of that higher level of reasoning. Over, new, over time, those new pathways are going to warp what someone views as normal, making normal intimacy seem less appealing. This is why some men in particular can only have intimacy with their wife while viewing pornography. That's why if you've tried to quit pornography or any addiction, the more entrenched that someone is, the harder it is to turn the ship. Not impossible, but the harder it is to turn the ship because it literally rewires your brain. It's why some young men are impotent in their 20s because they've become so conditioned by pornography that they are unable to be intimate with their own wife. But at the same time, research shows that over time, our brain can rework those pathways. Over time of abstinence and saying no to this particular sin, our brain can heal itself, which I believe it's God that does the healing, which is pretty cool. Another thing we don't talk about very much with pornography is how pornography is connected to sex trafficking. And maybe I can illustrate with the story. This is not a happy story, not that this is a happy message to begin with. There's a young woman, we'll call her Jane Doe. She had just turned 21. She was working on a modeling career, so she hops on a plane, gets a contract to do a gig out in San Diego. Gets on the plane, pumped for this gig, lands in San Diego, gets off the plane, and there's a couple men that are there to pick her up. They pick her up, they steal her phone, they coerce her into signing a contract that they didn't even let her read, and they take her to a hotel, and they fill her with drugs against her will and force her to have sex on camera for six hours. This young woman thought she was doing a modeling gig. And then they went ahead and published uh, the video on the internet with her full legal name. Can you imagine the damage that did this young woman? I know what you're thinking. This is just one isolated instance. You know, this probably isn't a very well-known uh, company. At one time, this was the 20th most popular channel on the most used pornography website. A company that had over 1 billion views and had grossed $17 million in revenue and had been allowed to function on this website for 11 years. 
before they were finally prosecuted. One billion views of millions of users. I don't think we think too often of how pornography and the sex trafficking industry are connected. When someone's viewing pornography, they don't think about the damage that they're doing to the person on the other side of the screen. But we have to remember that pornography is not a victimless sin. But there's this idea, especially within Christian circles, especially within a young adults group like ours, that marriage will solve the problem. That maybe somebody's struggling with pornography or sexual sin and they think, man, if, if I can just get married, uh, then there'll be this, this place for me to fulfill the sexual desire that God's given me. I mean, it's a good thing in the first place. And, and then I'm not going to struggle with pornography anymore. Do you know what happens? And maybe it's the end of the honeymoon or you know, maybe it's a month or two later that individual, nine times out of ten, will return to pornography. Does that make sense? Why? Well, just because pornography makes sex selfish. But sex in marriage is selfless. It's others-centered. When someone is, is viewing pornography, they're actually focusing on themselves, not on their spouse. So intimacy in marriage doesn't fix, doesn't solve, doesn't eradicate the problem. Okay, I'm done being a Debbie Downer for a little while. That's the bad news. In two words, sin sucks, and it affects every part of us. And not only does the Christian worldview help us understand God's design for sex, but through Christ, we have hope to overcome sexual addiction. And that was probably the longest introduction you've ever heard to our Bible passage. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John 16. We're just going to look at one verse tonight, a verse that Jesus provides giving us hope on how we can overcome any sin in our life. John 16, let's look at verse 33. Remember, we're in the middle of the upper room discourse, and Jesus and his disciples are just having this weird conversation. And they're talking about the future, and, and the disciples are saying, yeah, it makes sense that you're the Messiah. And then Jesus predicts that the disciples are going to leave him high and dry, that they're going to abandon him. Actually, Jesus tells them, each one of you is going to leave me and abandon me to your own home. They're going to abandon Jesus. They're going to leave Jesus all alone. I mean, this is like the most epic fail of the disciples' entire life. And after Jesus says that, after he predicts that, I mean, he predicts major sin in their life. Abandonment, abandoning of Jesus, of rejecting Jesus. Don't you think Jesus would say, like, have a little bit of a lecture for them? Like, say, guys, haven't you been paying attention for the last three years? Like, don't you understand that you're about to reject me? Like, this is the, you do not understand. Verse 33, chapter 16. I have said these things to you, the last four chapters, that in me you may have peace. In this world, you'll have tribulation or trouble, maybe your translation says, but take heart I've overcome the world. Man, does that just blow your mind? The background is the disciples' colossal failure, a major sin struggle in their life. And Jesus says, take heart. In this world, you're going to have trouble. In this world, you're going to have temptation, you're going to have trials, you're going to have persecution. But take heart. I have overcome the world. I love that word overcome. And, and maybe 
If you've been around contemporary Christian music at all for the last decade, um, you've heard Mandisa's song, Overcomer. It was like top of CCM in 2013, if you can remember back that far. I'm not a big Mandisa fan, by the way. Um, Don't tell her I said that. But here's, and I'll tell you why. Here's the lyric for her, uh, her chorus of the song Overcomer. It says this, you're an overcomer. Stay in the fight till the final round. You're not going under. Here's why I don't like that lyric. I know what she's saying, but here's why I don't like it. You are not an overcomer. You suck. And so do I. Because look at John 16, 33. Did Jesus say, but take heart, you're going to overcome the world. No. What did he say? I have overcome the world. That is a huge difference. Jesus is the overcomer. You and I are not. And until we get that in our mind, we are never going to overcome any sin struggle in our life until we understand that Jesus is the one who has overcome. You hear what he said? He didn't say, I'm going to overcome or I will overcome. He says, I have already overcome the world. Even before going to the cross, before dying for the sin of the world, before rising from the dead, Jesus says, I have already overcome the world, which would be incredibly arrogant unless he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that he was going to win. And he did. Jesus has overcome the world, which is amazing. That the moment we turn away from our sin and we trust in Christ for our salvation, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, comes and takes up residence in our heart, begins that work of transformation, making us look more like Jesus one step at a time. That the moment that we believe in Jesus as our Savior, as our overcomer, we're not chained to sin anymore. That the bondage, the slavery to sin that, that we've experienced in our past, we've been set free. Jesus holds the key. That happens at the moment of our salvation. It's what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, that we are dead to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ. Not because you're an overcomer, but because Jesus is the overcomer. But if that's true, if Jesus holds the key and he unlocks the chains of sin, the moment that we become a Christian, then why in the world do any of us still struggle with sin? because we still battle the flesh, because our story is not finished yet, because we live in this already not yet tension and, and we're still fighting sin in this earthly life. It's one of the things I'm looking most forward to when we get to eternity is not having to deny the flesh anymore. And some of you are doing a great job at feeding the spirit compared to feeding the flesh. By feeding the Spirit, you're staying away from, from sin. You're spending time in Scripture. You're talking to God in prayer. You're coming to young adults. Maybe you listen to worship music. You're reading some theology books. You're having conversation about Jesus. When we do those things, we, we keep in step with the Spirit. But there's some of you tonight that are doing a, a better job of feeding the flesh. You're letting those thoughts run wild. You're watching that Netflix series that is just inundated with sexual themes and innuendos. Or you're having some inappropriate sexual conversations with your friends. Or you're following that Instagram account that really isn't doing your mind any good. 
or you're reading that romance novel that doesn't have any pictures, but it certainly paints a pretty clear picture in your mind. If you feed the flesh, it's going to grow. The desires are going to grow. The appetite's going to grow. But if we're going to defeat sexual sin in our life, then it starts with surrender. It starts with full surrender to Jesus, admitting that we don't have the power to change, admitting that we can't overcome, admitting that we need Jesus, crying out to him, letting go of the sin, and begging him for the power to change. Victory starts with full surrender. But after we surrender, then how do we change? How do we work through these struggles together? Well, there's a couple things that I wish everyone knew about overcoming sexual sin. And some of them are from my favorite resource. It's a book called Finally Free. If you've read it, some of these will feel familiar. We've got to understand the difference between godly grief and worldly grief. And my guess is you understand grief when it comes to your sin. That many times when we give in to sin, we feel bad. We feel down. We feel sad. But there's two different types of grief. Worldly grief mourns the consequences of our sin. Worldly grief happens when we get caught and we're bummed that our sin has been exposed. Worldly grief happens when we're sad that our life is spiraling out of control or that your significant other just dumped you because you can't get over this problem. That's worldly grief. But with worldly grief, who does it revolve around? Around you. Revolves around me. We become the center of our own universe. Selfishness. The same selfishness that propels someone to look at pornography in the first place. We will never find victory over sin until we see our sin primarily as an offense to a holy God. Godly grief. Seeing how our sin hurts our heavenly father before it hurts ourselves. In the sin in your life, in my life, regardless of what it is, are you sad over the consequences of your sin? Are you sad, grieved that your sin hurts your heavenly father? There are three things that have to be true for somebody to look at pornography. You've got to be alone. You've got to have access. And you've got to have an appetite. Three A's. Alone, access, appetite. You take away one of those three things, it's not going to happen. If you're alone and you have the desire, but you're stranded on a desert island with no cell phone and no cell phone coverage, nothing is going to happen, right? Or if you have the desire and you have the access, but Fritz is standing over your shoulder, nothing's going to happen, right? But the goal is that we decrease our appetite, our desire for sin. It's the long, hard war versus the short, easy battle. We win the short, easy battle by reducing our access, by reducing our aloneness. But we win the long, hard war by reducing our appetite, our desire. You can't win a long, hard war without winning the short, easy battles. Now, none of the battles are easy, right? But that means when we're fighting a struggle like this, we've got to start with making sure that we're not alone all the time. Not alone in our room. We're not alone with our phone in our room. Maybe it means limiting your access, giving somebody else control over a phone or a computer. 
as we fight those battles, trusting that Jesus will change our desires over time, longing for Jesus more than we long for sin. So our goal for each of us be that someday we can be alone with access, but that we don't have the desire to give in to sin. Finally, uh, for practically, sometimes we need to employ some radical measures if we're going to get rid of a sin, if you're going to get rid of a sin like this in your life. Sometimes I'll have a conversation with a young adult. We're talking about struggling with pornography, and, and he'll say, or I'll ask, rather, well, what are you going to do this week? What steps are we going to take? And across the table, I'll hear, you know, Sam, I really want you to pray for me. And I'll pray too. And uh, I want you to send me a couple Bible verses this week. That, that'd really help. <laughs> and I try to restrain myself, but here's what I feel like saying. It doesn't really sound like you care very much about overcoming the sin. If the most radical step you want to take is praying and asking me to send you a Bible verse, then it doesn't really sound like you really care about overcoming this sin struggle. Now, do we start with prayer? Absolutely. And is spending time in God's Word essential? Absolutely. But if a sin like this has a grip on your life, it might mean doing some crazy things. It might mean taking that iPhone and chucking it into the middle of a lake. I mean, how satisfying would that be? That'd be amazing, right? It might mean giving somebody else access to your credit card or giving somebody else access uh, to your bank account information so they can see what, where and when you're spending money for some added accountability. Or maybe it just means giving somebody else access uh, to your phone. Maybe it's your spouse, letting them look at it anytime that they want and making sure that the browsing history is there. Maybe it means deleting Safari and giving somebody else access code so you can't have it on your phone. I mean, there's so many practical, radical things that we can do to help limit access to explicit material. But what do you love more? Your phone or Jesus? Your computer or Jesus? Sometimes we've got to do some crazy things to limit access to sin in our life. So I'm going to end tonight with a tone of hope. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 6. This is a great passage. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. We'll start there. Where Paul writes this, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor the idolaters, nor the adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And in unison, we all gulp, right? Is there any one of us that does not find some way that we apply to this list? I don't think so. I mean, this is condemning anybody who's defined by these things, will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then look at verse 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Friends, pornography and sexual sin is not the unforgivable sin. <laughs> 
I'm afraid that the church has treated sexual sin like it's unforgivable, which has propelled people towards silence because they don't want to face the judgment from somebody sitting across from them or sitting next to them. The gospel is beautiful. As one pastor puts it, we're more sinful and wicked than we could ever imagine, but we're more loved in Christ than we could ever hope. If you've never looked at pornography, you are still a dirty, rotten sinner. And if you've looked at pornography a thousand times, you are still a dirty, rotten sinner. All of us desperately need God's grace. All of us need his forgiveness. And that's the gospel. That all, each of us, every single one of us has a horrible sin problem. That if we printed off a list of our sin, it would go from here to Merrill, right? It'd be embarrassing. And there's no way that we could even dream to pay for our sin. God's standard to get into heaven is perfection. And none of us are even close to God's standard. That we've earned by our own sinfulness eternity separated from God in a literal place called hell. That is the worst news. But Jesus lived that perfect life in thought, in attitude, and in action, never sinning once. Even though he was tempted in every way as we are, every way, including this, yet without sin. That Jesus went to the cross for you and me, taking all of our sin and paying the price for it on the cross. And maybe you've been around church, maybe you've heard about Jesus, but you haven't yet trusted him, believed in him as your savior. Maybe you've been fighting sexual sin on your own, and maybe the problem is that you don't have a new heart, that you haven't trusted in Jesus as your savior. You haven't been washed and justified in Christ. If Jesus isn't your savior, that is the most important decision you can make. Believe in him as your savior. Turn away from that old way of life and follow him. So we're going to finish tonight being practical. And we're not going to have normal small groups tonight. I think this topic can sometimes be a little bit uncomfortable to talk about in a small group setting. So we're going to do something a little bit different that I think will be helpful. We're going to send the ladies across the hall to the traditions room. There's nice and comfortable across the hall. And you're going to do a Q&A. Uh, guys, we're going to do the same thing over here. And before we split, ladies, I'm not following you across the hall because I don't qualify to enter into that room. There's a couple things that I want to say to you directly since I can't join you for your Q&A. Ladies, talking about sexual sin, especially pornography, is more taboo among women than it is among men. Statistics would suggest that more men than women are struggling in this area, but the struggle is still a reality for many women too. So if the struggle is a reality in your life, I would encourage you to find someone that you can trust to open up with about the struggle, maybe a mentor or a small group leader, maybe it's one of the ladies on the Q&A panel tonight. Or maybe you want to take a really bold step and join Sue McDonald's sexual faithfulness class for women that's starting in January. If you'd like more information for that, you can email Sue McDonald, our women's ministry director. Guys, I've got nothing for you. We'll talk in our Q&A. So let me pray. Uh, Father, this is not an easy thing to talk about because each one of us who walked in the room tonight deal with 
sexual brokenness. None of us are flawless, even close to flawless, in this area of our life. And may we walk with encouragement, knowing that all of our sin, past, present, and future, has been paid for at the cross when we believe in Jesus. There is not, sexual sin is not the unforgivable sin. So may we work to fight for purity through the power of grace and forgiveness, not out of shame, not out of guilt, not out of pressure, but because we want to follow you in obedience as faithful sons and daughters. So as we spend a little time talking in um, our Q&As tonight, uh, we do ask that you might guide the rest of our time and our discussions together. In Jesus' name, amen.